Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome back to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks, and I am standing in as host for this episode in David Rothkopf's place. David is once again on an airplane, which is where he spends most of his time. But here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, I'm sitting with our producer, Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo, uh, and joining us by Skype from Australia, where it is now 2.48 in the morning, is Corey Shockey. Uh, and joining us also distantly from southern Illinois is Heather Hurlbert, who runs the Initiative on New Models of Policy Change at New America. Uh, Heather and Corey, uh, I thought we should talk a little bit about President Trump's recently announced uh, new strategy for Afghanistan. Uh, we're recording this uh, on Monday afternoon, so uh, there may be some slight shifts, but I doubt anything dramatic is going to change before the time this goes over the air. So, Corey, can you start by explaining to us, uh, do, is there a new strategy? Is I can't quite figure out whether there is something actually new for real that just happened or whether uh, Trump's President Trump's recent remarks just herald uh, more of the same uh, vague, we're not going to leave, but we're not really quite going to commit to doing anything in particular either. So what's going on here, Corey? I do think there is something new. I think the president has uh, committed to an end state in Afghanistan. And that end state is that we will remain alongside the Afghan national security forces and the Afghan government until they have the capacity to manage the threats that are emanating from Afghanistan that we are worried about. Um, and so they do have a clearly identified end state. They have removed two of the um, worst elements of the Obama administration strategy, which are a time rather than circumstances uh, driven and end to the war, and second, uh, resources too limited to achieve their objectives. So um, I do think they have a defined end state that's clear in their minds. I do think they have matched the resources to it. I do think they are allowing the, uh, the potential success of the strategy to be the metric for resourcing. And I think those are improvements over where we were before the president um, committed to this strategy. Heather. I am worried. Oops, I'm sorry. Sorry. Go ahead, Corey. I was going to say I am worried that uh, two pieces of the strategy will lead to it being unsuccessful. 
The first is while the president's speech made lip service to whole of government operations and an integrated political, economic, and military strategy, both the president's own behavior, by which I mean to say the budget, and so let me take that different. Let me make a slightly less complicated <laughs> sentence structure. But the president's budget, namely the 30% cut in funding for state and foreign assistance, um, make unlikely that we will be able to sustain a balance between our civilian and military efforts in this strategy. And second, uh, the fact that nothing in the strategy indicated, nothing in the president's comments indicated they had really thought through an integrated strategy. I think that could be one big sticking point. And the second big potential for failure of the strategy is the one that has bedeviled President Bush, President Obama, and President Trump's approaches to Afghanistan, which is how do you create circumstances in which Pakistan actually uh, is helpful in preventing sanctuary for uh, for fighters in Afghanistan, for uh, Pakistan's support for the Haqqani Network and other terrorist organizations, and Pakistan's um, desire to see a failed Afghanistan if that will look bad for India. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but but Heather... Um... I, I don't know if you are a reader of the wonderful uh, blog, the Duffel blog, which for those of our listeners who who don't follow the Duffel blog, it's sort of a military version of The Onion, um, which writes sort of uh, parodic and satirical articles about uh, military and defense and national security issues. Uh, I noticed that The the Onion had a, uh, a piece up uh, recently with uh, the headline that read something like it was one of those sort of so painful it's not even really satire anymore because it's true. Um, one of, A headline along the lines of, you know, uh, a few more troops and a little more time and we can really turn the corner in Afghanistan, say last 17 generals commanding U.S. troops there. Um, so th- the obvious criticism of this is who are we kidding, guys? It's been 17 years, more or less, uh, 16 years, 17, 16, 17 years that the U.S. has had a uh, military presence in Afghanistan. That that presence in terms of troop numbers has ranged from, uh, you know, a handful of troops to well over 100,000 troops at different points. What on earth would make this different? He- Heather, are, are you skeptical? Well, I want to start by um, giving full credit to Corey and um, just pointing out one of the reasons why Corey is such a wonderful interlocutor that Corey managed to to lay out what is, I think, the very, very best case scenario for this new policy, and then to express a couple of concerns, which basically together um, added up to the counter case that that I had had prepared to make, and that's some <laughs> that's a degree of intellectual honesty that I'm sad to say is rare in our field. So, but I'm not on now, deep state radio. Where so I could see my gonna, thanks to you, Heather. <laughs> I'm now going to restate what, what Corey said in a slightly stronger uh, tone, which is that um, what I heard in the, the what was presented last night was um, an objective, an objective 
um, and a timeline in that, you know, the timeline is we're going to stay as long as it takes. Um, but absolutely no objective in terms of this is what, this is what a functioning or a sufficiently well-functioning Afghan state would look like, or this is how the Afghan state becomes that functioning. Um, and this is how the U S supports it. You know, so we know we're not nation building because the president said we aren't. Um, but, um, if, I think it's a fair fair thing to all parties involved to say that if the Afghan state had been able to figure out how to get strong enough not to have us breathing down their necks, they would have done that a long time ago. So we have, um, and frankly, it's a fair point to say that we have, as administrations before before this one, um, we have we now have a time goal or the absence of a time goal without any kind of um, explicit strategy for how. Um, how Afghan institutions or Afghan governance get stronger at either the, the national or the local level, or even, frankly, at the purely security level. Um, and this is where we, we come back to, to another of the, the critiques that Corey cleverly got in front of me and made, um, which is that um, as much as Afghanistan is a military problem, it, even more than that, it is a, it is a political and social problem. Um, and although, you know, I want sort of immediately to contradict myself and say, obviously, it, it, there are enough forces inside Afghanistan for whom the current situation is preferable than of, to others. And for them, it is therefore not a problem. And they therefore keep it this way. And what we haven't ever figured out, and nor did the Soviets figure out, nor did the British in the 19th century figure out, um, and so therefore the odds are pretty long, is what is the what are the outside incentives that can be used to help create some other more stable um, internal situation? And um, as as brilliant as our military minds are, there are very few people who think that a a military first strategy is the way to get at that. And um, again, I think we can we can say, and I think the two of you will agree that the previous administration didn't do a good enough job on the non-military side either, but this administration has systematically gone about cutting out from under itself the tools, you know, whether it's the State Department, whether it's USAID, whether it's regional partnerships, whether it's the willingness of other nations well, to, to help. So let me, let me you know, play devil's so advocate here, though. We don't have those tools. Yeah, let, let me, let me, I don't know why I'm going to do this, but I'm going to, but I'm going to defend Donald Trump for just a second. Um, uh, and play devil's advocate. Couldn't I make the argument that that um, you know what uh, he didn't? This is not what he said, right? But that it would be possible for uh, for an intelligent person who maybe would not be Donald Trump, but it would be possible for some intelligent person to have said what he said, and and in fact, in the back of their minds, be thinking um, the following: be thinking, you know what. Uh, I'm not going to promise a particular time frame for withdrawal because, number one, I think we don't want to – that's dumb. We don't want to give our enemies, you know, just hang in there till next October, fellas, and we're out of here. Um, but I'm actually – I'm OK with this being open-ended and okay, I'm OK with this not really having a diplomatic and economic development side because, frankly, I don't care about the Afghans very much. I care a little tiny bit about them. Um, but I don't care about them very much. I fundamentally – I'm the president of the United States. I care about U.S. security. And my goal in having 
a U.S. military, continued U.S. military presence in Afghanistan, which may ebb and flow as needed. My sole goal is to use that military presence, ebb and flow it as needed, to eliminate immediate threats to the security of the United States of America in the form of, you know, resurgent terrorist activity, you know, ISIS encroachment, you name it. Um, and that might that threat might go away in one year. It might stay there for the next 50 or 100 years, in which case I'm perfectly comfortable having, you know, a couple dozen thousand U.S. troops there forever. This is not, you know, the nation is rich enough. I think we can afford this. And this is not, thank goodness, uh, leading to the deaths of lots of U.S. service members. And it's fine with me if this is basically a maintenance strategy. And and if if it helps the Afghans... On you know along the way, great you know, but I'm I'm not I don't why this is this is for us this is not for them so what do I care if I don't have diplomatic strategy is is that is would that be a plausible explanation for what might be going on in the minds of some proponents of this a and and b if in fact that's what they're thinking is that okay, Corey. Uh, so I don't have any particular insight into what they are thinking about this, but I, I do think they have made a conscious choice. Well, let me put it differently. It is clear by the strategy that the president announced that they are narrowing the focus from counterinsurgency that is working in and with the society you are trying to affect to shape them politically, socially, um, and to make it them less uh, vulnerable to exploitation by terrorist or jihadist actors in their midst. They are trying to narrow the focus from that, which clearly the president doesn't like because he castigates it as nation building to narrow that to a counter-terror strategy which kills bad guys in their midst um, and and tries not to be a major political factor. I do think there's a lot of, there's the potential for real contradiction in their strategy, in part because it's not clear to me how with troops you know, 15,000 troops, 10,000 troops in somebody else's country, you can't uh, be a part of the politics that are going on in that country. Moreover, I think actually one of the reasons I am moderately successful, the strategy might succeed, is because they are supporting we do have an Afghan government that is both committed to the same things we are trying to achieve and an Afghan society that by evidence of the Afghans who continue to sign up to fight in the Afghan police and the Afghan military, although they are taking 31 killed in action every single day, I believe we and they are committed to the same outcome. And I, while I do worry about the potential for the military effort outpacing the Afghan government's ability in judicial and, and legislative and other crucial governance 
lines of operations. I do at least think we and the Afghan government are aligned politically on what we're trying to do. And that had not been the case for much of the 16 years we have been operating in Afghanistan. I think, Corey, that it's worth underlining the point you just made. It always uh, drives me nuts when I hear people say things like, well, why should we do their fighting for them? If it's not important enough for them to fight for, why should we do it? And I think, don't you realize how many Afghans have been killed fighting alongside us or in front of us, uh, you know, notwithstanding the the occasional incidents in which uh, Afghan allies uh, have been infiltrated by Taliban or ISIS or al-Qaeda sympathizers? Uh, the vast majority of the time, um, Afghanistan is losing an enormous number of people uh, trying to pursue an agenda that we share. Um, um, but so, Heather, what do you think of what do you think of the thought experiment I put out there? Of you know, maybe this is actually a slightly cynical but not unsophisticated uh, sort of maintenance counterterror strategy, and would that be defensible and viable? Uh, and number two. Curious to know if anything surprised you uh, in the president's speech about Afghanistan. Well, um, so I'll start with my snarky answer, which is that, yes, uh, what you describe, I think we heard in the past as uh, the Joe Biden plan. And so it's highly entertaining to imagine the <laughs> Trump administration picking up the the Joe Biden plan for, for counterterrorism in, in South Asia. Um on a more substantive level, um, I fear that actually um, the experience of the Obama administration gives us some reason for, for pessimism around the idea that that a pure counterterrorism approach um, as you or a streamlined counterterrorism approach as you describe it is is a successful one um, in that we can point to a number of places where uh, the Obama administration tried to to back away from the kind of all-in counterinsurgency or three-quarters in maybe counterinsurgency approach and just do let's kill bad guys, let's never let, you know, the theory, the theory is if you can kill enough of the right bad guys at the right time, they can never get organized enough to do any harm to the U.S. And um, arguably that, that strategy had a pretty mixed outcome in in what we see now happening in um, Yemen, as well as I think one has to contemplate what what relationship those assumptions had to to the rise of ISIS. So just as a purely kind of theoretical matter, leaving leaving politics and administrations out of it, um, I th- I think the 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 idea that we could. Um, we could manipulate or or keep a lid on terrorist movements that were interested in pointing at us through a purely kinetic um, sort of hands off yet guns on approach. I, I I think it has taken some beating over over the last eight years. So again, from a sort of never mind what I think about the Trump administration or any of the the leaders involved here, I'm just I'm pessimistic about that as a as a model for. Mm-hmm. For counterterrorism. So what about surprises? Um, Did anything in the surprise yeah. you? Um, you know, I'm, I'm always surprised when the president speaks to, I'm always surprised when the, this president sticks to a text. Uh, so that's a kind of, that's a kind of snarky thing to say, but, um, it is true. And, um, so it makes me not so much surprised, but concerned that I 
think that the way this president approaches um, some of these uh, really deep, profound national security questions that um, those of us who do this for a living spend a lot of time arguing in a way that, that to us um, are really about the lives and well-being of the people, um, both the American soldiers were asking and civilians were asking to put their lives at risk, but also the, the folks on the ground in the country of concern. Um, my view of that speech last night was that it was very much a sort of, this is what I have to do to keep one part of my coalition with me in order to be able to do other things I, President Trump, am more interested in doing. Yeah, so um, what's so... I, Sorry, let me just just break in and say, you know, what's so interesting about that, of course, is that he may be keeping one part of his coalition with him, uh, but maybe at the expense of another part of his coalition. I mean, one of the things that was sort of interesting. I think that's right. uh, You know, Breitbart Breitbart News um, now once again led by uh, President Trump's uh, former chief strategist, Steve Bannon. Um, back at the helm of Breitbart. And Breitbart just ripped into President Trump for this decision with headlines about, you know, flip-flops and, you know, McMaster is Trump's master and he's just like Obama and, this, you know, he's betraying us. Uh, you know, Corey, what do you think? Is he going to lose some of his own base? So I thought the odds were six in ten that President Trump was going to walk away from the war in Afghanistan for exactly that reason, Rosa, that I think he personally and temperamentally is ill-suited to sustaining over long periods of time an unpopular but important policy. And I thought uh, that to the extent that he had clear policies when he was running for office, one of them was... Uh, that we don't do nation building and uh, Afghanistan is a sinkhole that we shouldn't be committed to. So I I thought it was really likely that the president would be unable to persuade himself to do what he did in committing to um, a long-term strategy for Afghanistan, for the for the war in Afghanistan. I do think it's likely to be politically costly to him it uh, with the 23 or so percent of Americans who continue to be Trump supporters, as Rosa pointed out, this is very much not their program. This is the globalists taking over Donald Trump. And I think it's going to be quite politically costly to him. Heather, what do you think? Yeah, I don't disagree with what Corey has said. I do think that this is a that the president sees himself as having these different bases that he can placate each enough in turn, sort of as if they were all creditors on a real estate deal. And um, as long as he can kind of balance on the backs of the various a tigers, a little something for and, you, a little something for you. Right here, I'm going to make you mad this week, right. but I just, but you, know, but you know, come on, like, look, 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 white nationalists, where else are you going to go? You know, you've, you've seen where, how good the point. rest of the Republican Party deserts you. <laughs> that is a really so, good point. So, but to, to Corey's point about the temperament that's required to, um, to, to sustain long, unpopular international engagements. And um, it'll, I mean, another thing that will be interesting to me to see is that the public, um, 
the public has been done with Afghanistan for a long time, which I say in a flip, I mean, that sounds flip and it sounds completely not, um, not, not just and not fair to the folks in Afghanistan who don't have any choice about being done, but it is nonetheless the case that the American public is just done. And, you know, one of the things that if I'm sitting, um, if I'm sitting in the defense department right now, I desperately want the president and other senior officials to keep talking about Afghanistan in order to sort of communicate to the Republican base that this is something you got to continue to support. It's a core value. But of course, they can't do that because then it'll keep reminding the Bannon part of the base that is angry about this, that they're angry about it. So they're going to have to do the thing where they make the commitment and then don't talk about it, which we know from a sort of, you know, the the bipartisan history of the post-Cold War period that's how that's how interventions become unpopular and and die. So, you know, how long can this president keep this balancing act up? Who the heck knows? Is it possible to keep it up and do um, carry out this policy in the kind of best case scenario way that Corey described? I, I don't think it is, but I guess for the for the lives of everybody involved, we have to hope that it is. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about another piece of uh, the president's comments. Um, and I, you know, I just maybe before I do that, I'll throw this in. I, you know, I think Trump's instincts are are, you know, he's got he's got inconsistent instincts on this. On the one hand, he he took a pretty strong stance as a campaigner. Uh, against uh, what he viewed as sort of foolhardy interventions, nation building. He criticized Hillary Clinton's hawkishness, uh, you know, said she'd just get us into more wars. He wouldn't do that. On the other hand, uh, he has very bellicose impulses when when his ego is challenged and, you know, will threaten fire and fury uh, and, uh, you know, firebombing the children of terrorists and you name it. So, so I, I don't know that I see him as consistently one or the other, um, which is not not particularly a good thing. But, but one of the pieces of his comments uh, that was pretty interesting was the focus on Pakistan. Um, and I think we we ended one of our episodes last week, uh, Corey, and neither you nor nor Heather were participating. By uh, I I posed the question to our guest last week. Uh, uh, has everybody lost interest in Pakistan? We're all talking about North Korea and Iran, and what about what about Pakistan, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, proliferation issues? Um, and we sort of closed on a hmm. Everybody should be more worried about Pakistan than we are. Note. Um, so does this mean that we're all worrying about Pakistan again? Number one and number two uh, is Trump's rhetoric likely to have a positive result? Uh, Corey? Uh, so I, I vehemently agree with the collective I was not involved in last week that we are, we none of us are worried enough about Pakistan. Um, a developing country struggling for to democratize and to get civilian control of the military that has a terrible record on nuclear and ballistic missile proliferation, and that is building its nuclear arsenal as fast as it possibly can, um, that has supported jihadists in 
Afghanistan that has behaved irresponsibly towards other neighbors, including India. Like there's just so much to be worried about, about Afghanistan. And I do think one of the real challenges of having the entirety of our Pakistan strategy be about Afghanistan is that it will make it harder to get traction with Pakistan on any of those other issues about which we are also legitimately concerned and are central to our national security. I'm not, um, I'm hesitant to condemn the administration for its criticism of Pakistan uh, or several weeks ago of Secretary Mattis uh, refusing to uh, to sign off on the the transfer of military assistance to Pakistan, the fifty billion dollars or fifty million dollars uh, that that was scheduled to be transferred, uh, but Mattis was unwilling to certify that they were actually helping fight terrorism. Uh, we have tried. Uh, just about every approach to Pakistan over the course of the last 16 years. Uh, and I think none of them have worked particularly well. Uh, we've tried to have a strategic dialogue with them, to work in consultation, to reward them for their assistance. That hasn't worked. We have been punitive. That hasn't worked. I think um, it's a really big problem for our strategy in Afghanistan that we are unfortunately reliant on Pakistan's willingness to support it, because I'm not sure that's ever going to come about, but uh, I'm not convinced that the administration's punitive tack is a bad one. Heather? Yeah, so in many ways, Pakistan um, is kind of the perfect foil for American foreign policy in that it presents um, as a society, as a geostrategic actor, um, it, it presents sort of all of the qualities that we're the worst at dealing with. Um, unfamiliar culture, uh, nothing is black and white, um, very complex complex sort of multi-layered society where you have to deal with multiple actors um, and there's never one actor that you can just go to and, and check oh, the and box. Internal, so, internal um, instability. And internal instability. So, um, you know, one thing is I'll be, I'll be convinced that someone has derived a strategy toward Pakistan that might work when it takes as its starting place um, like something that, um, Corey, you just alluded to that basically no no interaction with Pakistan from an American perspective is ever going to be better than mildly unsatisfying. And when you bring the strategy, here's a way we can get to a mildly unsatisfying right. outcome that will allow these other things we want to do to go forward. You know, then I'll believe that that might work. But of course, you know, we're Americans. We don't like planning for a mildly unsatisfying yeah, outcome. Yeah, I'll, I'll take like mildly unsatisfying. For- that sounds pretty good. Sounds better than like <laughs> catastrophic. Yeah. But something I worry a great deal. I mean, so as Corey said, over the past 16 years, we've tried punitive. We've tried dialogue. Um Although one could argue that um, we haven't, um, 
you know, we have gone through various periods where Congress and presidents have had different views on how we should approach Pakistan. So I think a, a, an argument could be made that that a number of policies have been tried, number of them really, none of them really with with sort of full conviction and, and oomph. But, you know, if I'm sitting in um, in the Pakistani military or Pakistani intelligence and I'm looking at this administration, I think, well, first of all, I'm not sure I believe your threats. Um, I'm not sure I believe your threats. If you, on the other hand, if you were to at least, you know, I have seen you drop a few bombs a few places, and I know your military guys and I know they're serious. If you were to shift back to a more engagement tack, I certainly wouldn't trust you on that one because who do you have to do it? Who do you have in place who knows anything about our society and what buttons to push? So it was smart to adopt the threatening tack because at least that one they have some credibility. But um, it's very unclear to me how how to leverage any actual credibility given the particular challenges of this administration and to say that Pakistan internally is at an enormously difficult moment um, given the recent turnover in its civilian government, which has little but not no influence over what the military and intelligence services does. And I think even if you had a very sophisticated and plugged in um, American diplomacy right now, figuring out how U.S. interests play off of the interests of different Pakistani factions. And I suspect, as is often the case, the thing we want for Pakistan's long-term stability and the thing we want for the short term to help us get some traction in Afghanistan are contradictory. So I think there's no question that Trump's remarks uh, really annoyed many Pakistani leaders um, who felt uh, scolded and who felt like uh, Pakistan was not being given sufficient credit for the many lives that Pakistan has lost, both both in terrorist and violent extremist attacks within Taliban or the many lives Pakistan has lost uh, amongst their military personnel, uh, again, fighting essentially to pursue the same agenda as the United States. Um, so President Trump made Pakistan kind of mad. Uh, and this is not to say, uh, obviously, that his comment that Pakistan has also harbored uh, some terrorist organizations <laughs> is is wrong. Uh, it's clearly not wrong. Uh, although Trump Trump's claim that uh, he was sort of the first to point this out is is hardly hardly fair to either President Obama or President Bush, both of whom made that point on a number of different occasions. Um, but what about India? Uh, did did he make India happy? I mean, he certainly made Pakistan even more unhappy by commenting on the importance to the U.S. effort in Afghanistan of having more assistance from India. Um, but did, did, does India come out of this all smiles or are the Indians mad too? It, it, it struck me that uh, it was not an entirely equivocal Pakistan bad, India good. It was, it was a sort of uh, Pakistan bad, India not as good as it should be uh, set of remarks. Corey? <laughs> Uh, I was expecting the Indian government to have a worse reaction than it did, because I agree with you, Rosa. It was it was praise for what India might do in Afghanistan, uh, not nearly as much acknowledgement as I think India deserves for what they have done in Afghanistan, um, and setting India up as the role model that Pakistan ought to uh, 
uh, aspire towards. I'm sure the Indians like that last piece of it, uh, but the first two pieces, uh, I'm surprised the Indian government didn't have a more negative reaction to. I saw a statement that the Indian government put out, which seemed very um, placid and appreciative. Uh, so it looks to me like, at least in the near term, the Trump administration played that angle right. <laughs> Maybe the Indian government is also happy with mildly unsatisfactory at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I think you may well be right, Rosa. <laughs> Heather, did you want to jump in on this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, up to now, um, the Indian government and the Trump administration have done fairly well together. So if you're the Indian government, you, you know, you look at, you look at the, what you can discern of the plan and you think, okay, you know, there are no huge change. I mean, there are no huge changes here that are going to affect us. You know, it's a problem for India if the U.S. pulls out rapidly. It's a problem for India if the U.S. dumps 100,000 troops in rapidly. So if you're the Indian government, you think, okay, this is incremental. We can live with it. The players who are actually on the ground doing the work, we can live with it. And we have other things, frankly, going on with the Trump administration. So let's just not rock this boat. Well, we don't have much more time left in this podcast, so let me let me throw out one one last question. Um, on the one hand, I think uh, Trump's Afghanistan speech uh, is being interpreted um, by the media as of a victory for for the mainstream, in a sense, and and certainly as a victory in terms of uh, levels of influence within the administration, a victory for for uh, General Mattis, H.R. McMaster. Uh, and the military leadership. Um, um, on the other hand, uh, I didn't think that the way President Trump phrased things was an entirely unequivocal endorsement of uh, military advice. In fact, um, although he was far more on message and stuck to his teleprompter, uh, you know, than he normally is when he gave his remarks on Afghanistan. There definitely seems to be a subtext of this is not what I want to do. They persuaded me to do it, but I'm not really convinced that this is a good idea. We'll see, and I will be happily throwing everybody who suggested this under the bus if I get bored of this uh, in a few months. Um, uh, any thoughts on that, Heather and Corey? Yeah, I completely Rosa, agree with what you just said, and I think this is this is maybe the place to bring up um, the story that was broken in the post that one of the ways that um, National Security Advisor McMaster brought the president around was to sort of show him pictures of women in miniskirts in Kabul in the 70s. Um, and so ah, the good you, old days. Um, yeah. Um, which, you know, again, there's we could have we could have a whole episode just on that. Um, but if you if you imagine the amount and what we know from other areas about sort of how the care and feeding of this president works, and you imagine the person, the people who are in the jobs that that all three of us have had at one time or another. Sort of, I'm trying. I'm picturing. I'm picturing H.R. McMaster saying, "You know, Mr. President, the 1970s, all the Afghan women looked like Melania. Uh, we have to get back to that." <laughs> yeah, I was. I was really, really. Look what's happened to, to them? Think about it. Little, yes, we have to. We have to free them from. Yeah, because that works out. It, it's you know, I never. 
I never thought of, of HR as kind of a classic Western, we have to free them from their oppression of their own culture, feminist, but there you go. Um, so anyway, <laughs> you think about the, the proportion of brain power inside the U.S. government that is going to spend the next however many months and years trying to figure out how to keep the president engaged in his own policy and that that's brain power that's not engaged in trying to figure out how to deal with Pakistan or trying to figure out how to get enough governance outside the federal level to to make to make any of this work, um, which I am, am very pessimistic about. But, um, you know, I guess this is what we're going to try. You know, you, you just it's it's a ridiculous thing to, to be sitting in sitting in in Washington or even worse sitting in the field and saying to yourself okay can I get a picture today that's going to help ensure that you know the president doesn't pull the plug on this in two weeks and the kid over there who just lost his life didn't die just for sort of a six-week interlude so that's where I think we're sitting Corey any final thoughts on miniskirts uh, I do think it will keep. It will be a challenge to keep the president committed to a policy, but that's why not allowing, uh, why disciplining the president to a conditions based rather than uh, here's our here's our progress in this six months increment. Please also sign up to it for another six months uh, was important. I do think the president. Uh, the president is short on the virtue of patience and sustainment. Well, that is somewhat more than mildly uh, dissatisfying, but it's where we will have to stop. <laughs> um, well, folks. Thank you for your leadership this week, Rosa. Corey, thank you. Particularly thank you for the fact that you got up in the middle of the night down under to be part of uh, this week's Deep State Radio podcast. And thank you, Heather, for participating from Illinois and the totality, path of the totality. Um, uh, we will be back, uh, of course, next week. Uh, and I also wanted to make sure all of our listeners know that, as David has promised, uh, merchandise will be coming soon. And in the meantime, we hope that you will all tell your friends about Deep State Radio, send out exciting, delightful, funny little tweets about us, uh, link to us on your many blogs or whatever it is that you guys do in your spare time. And we're really happy that you're our listeners and we will be back. Thank you all. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.